Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Culture Wars. This week, I'm going to be talking about something I have to admit I didn't expect to be talking about. Uh, Those of you who have listened to the previous episodes of this show will know that we've focused primarily on on the culture war issues that have been facing us imminently, trying to explain uh, the the political situation as it unfolds, taking a look uh, at the different political leaders and why they hold the stances that they hold. But a story broke this week that I think is is important enough uh, to pause and take a look at on this show. And the reason for that is because it involves a social reform movement that a lot of movements, including, you know, the pro-life movement, virtually every major advocacy organization now points back to the civil rights movement and claims that legacy uh, in one way or another. Uh, Several years ago, I interviewed Dr. Alveda King, who is the uh, daughter of Reverend A.D. King, a prominent civil rights leader and the niece of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. She talks very often about her belief that her uncle uh, was very pro-life and that, in fact, um, and despite the fact that there were uh, numerous abortions in the King family, that her her granddaddy King, as she calls him, um, was very pro-life. And, and she talks a lot about the King family legacy as she sees it, how the civil rights um, movement essentially stood for the same principles that the anti-abortion movement stands for as well. And I think Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the on the political scene now is pretty much the closest thing that you get uh, to a secular saint in modern American society. I went to see the uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial uh, j- very shortly after it opened, actually, in Washington, D.C. It's just a magnificent memorial. I grew up listening to a lot of his speeches. I still hold that he is uh, the greatest orator of the 20th century. I don't think it's even close. Um, His I Have a Dream speech, as well as his I Have Been to the Mountaintop speech, um, as well as his uh, his speech that a lot of people haven't heard of uh, if I had sneezed. He's just just a magnificent speaker, and, and his speeches showcase uh, values that that are eternal, and 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 he he was such an articulate spokesperson uh, for justice, and and how justice is rooted in the Christian tradition. Of course, he he, he was a Baptist pastor, um, uh, pa- pastor at uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church, uh, and so the news this week that I was referring to uh, was published by Dr. David Garrow in Standpoint Magazine. It's a really long essay. It's over 6,000 words long. I spent a bunch of time working through it this week. And I have to admit that it did rock me back quite a bit. And I know a lot of other people who have had the same experience because it's long been known that that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, had committed infidelities that he had that he had cheated on his wife uh, Coretta Scott King while he was on the road. Uh, the, his wife accused him at one point of only being home for roughly ten hours a month. He was constantly on the road uh, working on his campaigns, working on the civil rights movement, and it's fair to say that he virtually abandoned his family in order to do this work uh, to his to his great shame. And I think King felt a lot of guilt for that. But what we didn't know is the is what Dr. David Garrow revealed in uh, in his Standpoint essay, which got turned down by a, a long list of publications before Standpoint, which is a is a is a 
small and limited British political magazine finally agreed to publish it. A whole bunch of American publications who you'd think would be very interested in the subject refused actually to publish it because Martin Luther King Jr., as I said, a secular saint, a memorial in Washington, D.C. There's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. His quotes are probably some of the most frequently used quotes by American politicians, perhaps uh, next to Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. His accomplishments, uh, what he did in, in changing the conscience of America on the issue of segregation is virtually unparalleled in the history of 20th century activism. And so to find out that Martin Luther King Jr. was probably involved uh, in a sexual assault, at least he was a bystander who verbally encouraged what was taking place, has rocked a lot of people uh, to their core. Uh, in the Me Too era, of course, we've been seeing uh, a lot of reckonings take, pl- take place. Uh, the progressive movement seems to really want to uh, tear down statues of, of all historical sinners and so I suppose it seemed inevitable that that at some point one of their heroes was going to come down as well. At the same time, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had sort of become the collective property of of the American people. Um, his his legacy was more or less universally recognized as a positive and an inspiring legacy. And so. It's quite difficult to grapple with this. You've got a lot of historians that are already accusing Dr. David Garrow of uh, using sources that aren't reliable because his sources are from FBI files. I'll let him explain that coming up here in just a moment. But just to give you an idea, like Dr. David Garrow, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his 1986 biography on Martin Luther King Jr., I've interviewed him once before on his 2017 biography of Barack Obama, Rising Star, The Making of Barack Obama. He wrote a book back in 1981 called The FBI and Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, He's written a book on Selma. He's, He's one of the foremost experts on Martin Luther King Jr., And he is a very left-wing fellow, a very, very left-wing guy. And so this is not some alt-right smear job. Um, This is a progressive historian grappling with the truth as he can read it in the sources about somebody he hugely admires. Uh, And because I think this is such an enormous uh, story, it's a significant cultural story, uh, it's a significant historical rethink in some ways, I thought that it would be important to discuss this story on this show. And in order to do that, I, I, I emailed Dr. David Garrow. As I said, I'd interviewed him once before on his Obama biography, uh, which which had a lot of interesting things to say as well. And uh, Garrow agreed to come on the show to talk about it. He was very gracious with his time as he had just spent an hour on the phone with the New York Times uh, for coverage on this story. And so Garrow agreed to come on and walk us through what his findings were. And this is that conversation. So first, could you just summarize uh, your findings in the new Standpoint essay that was just published? All of my new material comes from documents that the U.S. National Archives uh, quietly put up on the web uh, just over a year ago. Uh, It's a huge amount of material uh, dating from the 1960s and 1970s uh, occasioned by a a statute, uh, the John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Act, uh, whereby 
all documents uh, caught up in the congressional uh, investigations of the U.S. intelligence community uh, and the assassination. Uh, all of that material was mandated to be made public. Well, it's such a huge collection. There are more than 54,000 web links to documents right. on the archives website uh, that it, it's uh, almost impossible for anyone to sort through it and figure out what's there. Um, but I've been working with FBI documents for 40 years, uh, so I know the names of the people, I know the file numbers, the way the, the FBI's uh, filing system works, and I was very much hoping that this new set of material uh, would have uh, additional information about several of the most important uh, paid black informants uh, who were targeted against the civil rights movement. Um, what's there that's uh, most um, new and informative regarding Dr. King um, is on balance uh, mainly from the uh, FBI headquarters file on the FBI's uh, 1970s dealings with the Church Committee, uh, one of the, the major congressional probes of the intelligence agencies. Um, and it includes uh, a lot of items uh, detailing the FBI's electronic surveillance uh, of Dr. King during the 1960s. Uh, we've had uh, some parts of, of that story before, uh, but there's an awful lot of new detail uh, in this new material that's uh, reported in, in my article for Standpoint. And what is the material that's causing all the controversy? It's it's very, very rare to see historians brawling in major newspapers, but that's what's happening this week. The material uh, that's new uh, reflects both the FBI's microphone surveillances of, of Dr. King in hotel rooms uh, and also its wiretapping of his home and, and office in Atlanta. Uh, we've had previous uh, large collections of its of its wiretap records uh, on three of his closest uh, advisors, uh, and so I've had years of experience of, of looking at these documents. Um, and one of the uh, most fundamental things to say about about FBI documents and FBI files uh, is when the material is coming from a human informant, and the FBI had thousands of human informants in the 1960s, right. uh, one has to be very cautious uh, because the error rate in, in human storytelling is, is usually quite high. Uh, but with this new material, uh, it mainly comes from electronic surveillances, uh, and as I've known for years, uh, the reliability rate of, of uh, electronic intercepts, uh, where they're listening in, taking notes, turning on the tape recorder, uh, the reliability of, of the electronic surveillance information is at the 99% or better level. And one of the things that's causing the most controversy right now is that apparently one of the recordings, which will be under seal until 2027 when all this will be released, the FBI audio recordings, is a, a parishioner of one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s pastor friends um, raping her in front of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. while he allegedly laughs and, and gives suggestions. Is that an accurate characterization of what you found? Yes, that is indeed what's in one of the new documents 
uh, from the personal file of William Sullivan, who was the FBI's assistant director for intelligence during the 1960s, uh, and was very much the the decision maker or or the point person uh, in the FBI's pursuit of Dr. King. Now, Mr. Sullivan's personal file on King uh, has also been the source of of the suicide letter um, that we've had in different drafts or different redactions, I should say, for some years now. Um, And no one has ever questioned the authenticity of that nasty letter that Sullivan typed out to send to King. Uh, This new material uh, comes from exactly the same file as that suicide letter. And what, where the rape allegation is contained uh, is in a uh, draft revision that Sullivan's working on uh, to uh, expand and, and uh, enlarge uh, a sort of summary indictment of, of King's behavior. Now, I can tell from some of the latter pages uh, in this document of Sullivan's that he's working on this revision expansion uh, in the last days of, of March 1968, and the timing is, is crucial to the story. Um, in late March of 1968, Dr. King was organizing a, a massive protest, the Poor People's Campaign, uh, that was scheduled to descend upon Washington, D.C., uh, and throughout the federal government, uh, at the White House as well as at the FBI, uh, officials were exceptionally worried about about what would transpire. Uh, and Sullivan is updating this document almost day by day with information from Memphis, Tennessee, where, where King is, March 29th, March 30th. Um, and then all of a sudden, the document stops. Well, that's because Dr. King was assassinated on April 4th. And Sullivan obviously abandoned his uh, uh, revision project. Right now, there's no question that while he was doing this, uh, Sullivan had at hand uh, the transcripts that the FBI had prepared uh, from its tape recordings of King in these uh, hotel rooms uh, in prior years, and so that's the raw material uh, that Sullivan is is quoting from and and annotating. So just for a little bit of context, um, who is, uh, do you, what do we know about the person who was actually accused of committing the deed? Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, is, is accused of standing by and sort of participating uh, verbally. But what do we know about the man who's uh, accused of doing the actual deed in the documents you've uncovered? He was a minister from Baltimore, Maryland named Logan Kearse. Uh, who was a longtime buddy of Dr. King's uh, and had also, like King, gone to uh, theology school uh, at Boston University in Massachusetts. Uh, Reverend Kearse died uh, uh, a good number of years ago now. Um, I've, I've long known uh, Reverend Kearse's name as, as someone who was present uh, during this uh, two-day uh, sexually-oriented party uh, in early 1964 at the hotel, uh, but this is the first time we've had a, a, an allegation of rape. Now, um, in my big 1981 book on the FBI's pursuit of Dr. King, uh, I have a sentence in there on page 116 to be precise uh, that stemmed from my interviews with three or four Justice Department attorneys uh, who in the mid-1970s had themselves listened to the tape recordings and examined the transcripts. Uh, And we have a a 1977 
uh, public Justice Department report uh, saying that uh, attorneys listened to the tapes, read the transcripts, and that what's in the transcripts is on the tapes. Uh, but those attorneys described to me their memories. This was about five years after they'd done this. They described to me their memories of, of uh, force uh, being used against a woman uh, in a situation involving Dr. King. Now, they conflated that Willard scene uh, with another uh, subsequent event uh, where King and two friends uh, had a bisexual orgy with a paid prostitute in, in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, and the, the lawyer's uh, conflation uh, led me to say that the allegation of force uh, concerned Las Vegas, uh, not the Willard Hotel in Washington. Uh, so what I'm doing now, and this is very purposeful on my part, is is correcting the record. Uh, but the fact that there was an allegation of force against a woman, uh, that's been out there uh, for 38 years in my book, uh, and, and no one uh, had ever particularly focused on that before. I want to frame uh, this next question by pointing out that you're a you're a historian of of, of impeccably left wing tendencies. You've you've won a Pulitzer Prize for your previous uh, biography of, of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, which was published in 1986. With that said, I guess the the million dollar question um, that I'm wondering. And you're the best person to ask this uh, because of your expertise on the subject is, do you believe the allegations that you laid out in the Standpoint essay? We will know the the verdict come 2027 uh, when the actual tape recordings uh, are released. Um, I think it is very, very likely uh, that the characterization will prove to be uh, uh, primarily or, or largely accurate. Uh, and I say that uh, in large part, uh, again, because of my conversations many years ago with these Justice Department lawyers who themselves had listened to the tapes. Uh, and there's no question that uh, uh, those tape, tape recordings uh, contain uh, Dr. King's voice uh, saying uh, lots of uh, really uh, nasty, unpleasant, obscene things. Now, I didn't uh, emphasize uh, uh, this, this, is this uh, additional factor uh, very much in my Standpoint article, uh, but Dr. King, during uh, these sorts of uh, events, uh, I think without exception, was, was very drunk. Uh, it's clear from the Las Vegas uh, incident, uh, the, the uh, account, the prostitute's own account of the event, uh, that King was heavily drunk during... Uh, that event. Um, and we've known, I've known for many years, this is in my book, that certainly by 1967-1968, uh, King was a, a very heavy drinker. I think we could say a problem drinker. Um, I did not previously uh, know of documentation that the drinking was a, a serious factor in his life, uh, even you know, four years earlier. Um, but I, it feels improper to me to uh, stress that King was drunk, King was drunk, uh, because that that would seem to be uh, uh, you know excusing uh, abusive behavior of women uh, because the men involved were uh, heavily inebriated. When you're taking a look at Dr. King's life, I think one of the reasons 
that your new information and indeed uh, previous information uh, that that's along these lines, you've mentioned that he was frequently part of these these orgies, these sex parties, which stunned a lot of people when that information came out. And and I would I would posit that most people. Uh, outside the you know historical arena don't know much about that because they deliberately choose to ignore that aspect of his life. And that's because he was such uh, a brilliant and eloquent orator, always making use of you know psalms and hymns and biblical imagery um, fused together with sort of the the rich tradition of Negro spirituals. So to find out about this other side of him makes him almost seem, schizophrenic and then to find out that most of these these orgies were participated in by other pastors and that the things that were done and 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 what seems crystal clear by a lot of the information is that women were pressured into doing things even when uh, coercion was not present it's hard for people to wrap their mind around it so as somebody who wrote a biography of king and has spent years studying him how how do you explain the the public pastor king and then the private king that you've just you've just described to us. I I think that unfortunately we've seen uh, both in the last few years uh, here in the United States um, and in the historical record concerning the 1960s uh, that the serial abuse of women uh, by powerful men uh, has been uh, very extensive. Um, now. I've known for years that Dr. King had multiple girlfriends, uh, uh, one very serious one uh, in particular, Dorothy Cotton, whom I publicly named for the first time in this piece, uh, because she finally passed. She passed away a, a year ago, and now the archives has put all of these documents uh, out there with her, her name in them. Uh, all of us had previously uh, respected her desire not to be uh, publicly named as his his most important companion. Um, but we know, too, that John F. Kennedy, as president in the White House, uh, uh, pressured, forced a young intern, uh, Mimi Beardsley, uh, to perform a sex act on, on one of his buddies uh, while President Kennedy looked on uh, and enjoyed the scene. Uh, so what the FBI is alleging here against Dr. King uh, is not unfortunately that far different uh, from uh, what we've had reliably, very reliably alleged uh, against President Kennedy. And so would would you say, though, that, that King was sincere? And like this is what people are having a hard time dealing with is that is that the power of his speeches and his writings, you know, letter from a Birmingham jail, the I have a dream speech, their power is is the imagery that's used and the belief that it was coming from a genuine place. And a lot of people just want to know how could King say the beautiful things that he said rooted in the Christian tradition that everybody assumed he believed and yet be living this this other life behind closed doors. You've written before too some of the things that he said during these sex parties would be considered objectively blasphemous by most of the Christians who followed his campaigns at the time. Yes. Um, whenever King was preaching to his own congregation at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, uh, in many of those sermons, particularly during the last two years of his life, uh, he is uh, extremely confessional uh, in describing himself as a sinner. Uh, in this article, I quote from a, a March 3rd, 1968 sermon, just a month before he's killed, 
uh, where King is saying to his his congregants, people who've known him his whole life, he grew up in that church as a child, uh, that there is, and I'm, this is very close to an exact quotation, uh, that there is some uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in all of us. Uh, so King was not only knew that he had a, a bad side, an evil side to him, uh, he's confessing that fact in public. Now, all of the previous uh, wiretap uh, information we've had uh, for some years now uh, from the wiretaps on his closest advisors, uh, we see again and again in those wiretapped conversations uh, how intensely self-critical uh, and humble, uh, self-sacrificing King is. Uh, so to my mind, King was entirely genuine uh, in his religious faith, entirely genuine uh, in his desire to, to give of himself, to be of service to the larger cause. Uh, yet he had found himself unwillingly cast into this position as an internationally famous leader. Um, and I think it's without question that the private toll that that public burden uh, took on his life uh, was even greater uh, than I had uh, appreciated and expressed uh, back in Bearing the Cross uh, 30 years ago now. So when we look at, at what your new revelations say, and you talk about how eventually uh, when the final tapes and the transcripts are released, there's probably going to be a rethink of Martin Luther King Jr. If, if these allegations prove true. And as you've just pointed out, there's a, there's a lot of good reasons to suspect that they might be. When Ralph Abernathy, one of uh, MLK's closest assistants or lieutenants, uh, wrote a book that talked about what went on behind the scenes, he was virtually censured um, from from his original uh, social group of people who had worked with King in in the uh, in the civil rights movement. And so there's there's been this instinct to protect uh, Martin Luther King Jr. for decades now, especially among those who knew him. It struck me as I read through your standpoint essay that virtually none of the people who had affairs with King, and there were dozens of them, um, are, are willing to talk about it on record. None of the people that were involved in these sorts of things are willing to come forward. It seems like only one really close um, Lieutenant of King has ever come forward, and he paid very dearly uh, in, in social terms for making that mistake. What do you think the reaction to this new information is going to be now from those who worked al alongside King, including, you know, uh, one very prominent congressman and, uh, and the King Center and other groups like that? Um, the vast majority of the people who were close to Dr. King are, are now deceased. Right. Um, Dorothy Cotton, first and foremost. Um, and one of Dr. King's uh, uh, girlfriends, uh, uh, for a number of occasions, uh, the late Georgia Davis Powers from Louisville, Kentucky, um, who was a politician there in, in uh, Kentucky, um, Ms., uh, Ms. Davis published a, a very nice, uh, a, a very solid memoir of, of her relationship with Dr. King uh, some years ago. Um, most of these other women, I, I had previously known of about 10 names. Um, now there's uh, well over uh, double or triple that. Um, most of these were uh, uh, casual acquaintances spread out in 
uh, you know, different cities all across the United States uh, whom King would see when his travels happened to take him to Los Angeles or Chicago or Miami. Um, uh, in recent, uh, in the recent year or two, I've read two book manuscripts uh, by uh, professional uh, psychology, psychiatry people. Uh, neither of these has been published yet, and, and I don't allude to this uh, in my standpoint article. Uh, but both of these manuscripts have had a very powerful impact on me and my thinking about Dr. King. Um, one of those authors, Nasir Gaemi, a uh, psychiatry professor at Tufts University in uh, Massachusetts, you know, comes from a professional medical background. Um, uh, Nasir has a, a very powerful analysis of, of how uh, psychologically troubled uh, Dr. King was in private uh, because of, of, of how intense the burden of his public role was. Um, and, and I should leave that for when Nasir, who has you know, the professional credentials to, to explain this, this analysis, uh, for him to do. Uh, but I think where we're headed in terms of our understanding of Dr. King is indeed uh, a, a, a saddened appreciation uh, of just uh, how uh, great a, a personal toll uh, his, his public life took upon him. The final question would be uh, would be a more personal one for you because I know um, you've written about your admiration for King many many times. You spent and have spent years of your life studying his legacy. What did uncovering this information in the last year and then you know trying to shop the the essay around to the Guardian, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and having people sort of refused to, to publish it because I guess they thought the topic was too hot to handle. What was it like for you to find these things out about somebody that you deeply admired and then realize how resistant people were to finding it out? Um, for me, um, you know, having written a full book on, on exactly uh, this uh, sort of material uh, from the FBI files you know, 38 years ago, back in 1981, uh, I felt an inescapable professional obligation uh, to confront and and deal with and report this information. Uh, I'm coming up on 67 years of age. Uh, there's no guarantee that I'll still be around uh, eight years from now in 2027. Uh, and it would be uh, wrong for me to uh, pretend uh, that all of these new details uh, aren't uh, sitting there in public view. Uh, in the online version of, of my Standpoint article, standpointmag.co.uk, uh, many of the documents are hyperlinked so that with one click, anyone who's uh, you know reading the article on a computer uh, can go to the, the documents themselves at, at archives.gov. Um, so I think as a professional scholar who's been doing this for 40 years, uh, there was just no question that, that this material uh, has to be confronted. Dr. Garrow, thank you so much for taking the time to explain all this to us. Thank you very much.
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. David Garrow on recent discoveries about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Thank you so much for joining us on this show. We hope you found this uh, this information helpful. And if you want to check out our other shows, you can head to thebridgehead.ca, where everything is contained. We're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. Uh, and you can feel free to go back and check out other episodes of this show or episodes of my other podcast over at LifeSiteNews.com, The Van Maren Show, which features interviews every week uh, from the front lines of the culture wars. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us again next week.